Hello and welcome to the National Museums Liverpool podcast regarding the present. I'm Jane Garvey. Now, there are six episodes in this series, each one exploring a different theme with voices and experiences from the present and from the past, reflecting just some of the incredible stories in the museum's collections, programmes and communities. And we are spoilt for choice. There are so many stories. There are, after all, four million objects in the museum's collections. There's the Museum of Liverpool, the World Museum, the Maritime Museum, the International Slavery Museum, the Walker Art Gallery, the Lady Lever Art Gallery, and Sudley House. There's much to enjoy and a lot to learn. Future episodes will look at the themes of work, resilience, protest, movement, and isolation. But we're going to start with love, which is a pretty good place to start. You're going to hear from or about some people whose own love stories have a connection to the city of Liverpool. And if you were born there, like me, you'll know there's a spirit about the place that never leaves you wherever you go in the world. Paris may be the official city of love, but we all know Liverpool, Merseyside, has got passion by the bucket load. And it's always been a place, a place full of adventure and adventurers, full of people who love to challenge authority and conventional ways of thinking. I had my first romantic experience in the primary school playground in Waterloo back in the 1970s when a lovely lad called Keith, who had the most fantastic head of shiny brown hair, and was very fashionable, Keith. He often wore a lime green floral shirt with a matching tie. He presented me with a very elaborate Valentine's card with a great big pink velvety satin cushiony heart on the front. I was the envy of every other girl in junior too, as you can imagine. Keith, where are you now? To be fair, I think I moved on, probably too rapidly, to the boy with the biggest marbles collection in the year. The path to true love doesn't run smooth for most of us, if we're honest, though some people face more challenges than others. Our first story is that of two men, lovers who met decades ago when they were young, in the somewhat unlikely setting of the Merchant Navy. Michael is from Guildford originally, Dominic from Belfast. Both were fearful about what to expect from a working life at sea, as you can imagine. But the environment turned out to be tolerant and open. People accepted and helped them. Although, after one stowed the other away, there were repercussions. Here's Daniel O'Connor from Liverpool Museums. There are countless pseudo-scientific self-help books that try to define what true love actually is. Google it and you'll see words like nonapeptide, vasopressin, norepinephrine, and a host of other words that I struggle to pronounce. One fairly well-accepted notion is that true love comes after lust and attraction. It's a slow process, and it is enduring. Modern-day love stories tend to focus on which direction somebody swiped. But if true love stands the test of time, then the greatest romances of the present day precede even the invention of the internet. The following story involves not in which direction was swiped, but of which deck was swept. I was 
very frightened of going to sea because you know, I'd never seen a ship in my life, you know, and I knew I was gay, although I was only 17. And I worried, you know, what sort of reception I would get and how people would treat you on board and all this sort of thing. And I found that, uh, you know, after a few weeks, I noticed there was lots of gay people on the ship and nobody took any notice. They all just and they thought it was all fun and sort of, you know, it was great, no problem. This is Michael Rudder speaking in 2019 to our curatorial team about a life spent at sea. Fifty years earlier, after two years of college, he was unsure about the direction his life should take. A kindly college lecturer pointed him in the direction of P and O, told him to see the world, and even threw in a reference to boot. At the same time, in 1969, Belfast lad Dominic Brown, whose entire family had worked in shipping, had been earning his stripes on board a small ship ferrying coal from mainland Britain to Northern Ireland. After three months learning those particular ropes, he was ready for a life with the Merchant Navy. Dominic spoke to me over the phone during the latest lockdown and described what it was like for a young man who'd previously only ever been as far as Dundalk to arrive in one of the world's busiest port cities. It's quite long, Liverpool, Doctor. I didn't realise how long it would be. And I had my suitcase driven to this ship. And I remember... One Liverpool docker there uh, said, I'm looking for a ship called the Port Montreal. And he said, oh, I'll be down that part of the docks. All the port boats go down there. Don't worry about walking to the gate, son. It's too far away. He said, climb over the fence. So I climbed over the fence and he threw the suitcase back over and said to me, just keep walking to your right on down there and look at the ships. So you'll see it eventually. Both men continue to develop professionally. Michael on board passenger ships specialising in hospitality and Dominic on keeping the cargo ships, well, ship-shape. Both, too, were becoming increasingly comfortable with their sexuality on board, which, back home in 1970s Guildford and Belfast respectively, may not have been as simple. When I went to sea, I was terrified because, you know, at home in Guildford, my parents were very old-fashioned. It was never discussed. Uh, you know, anything came on the television, it was turned over. You know, the, 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 you know, it was a really homophobic atmosphere in, in where I lived in Guildford and everything, you know, and you were ashamed of your sexuality. And it was still legal until 1967. And, it, you know, and it carried on for quite a few years. And you, you had to be, you had to keep it yourself because if you didn't, you were allowed to, you know, physical assault and, and, and abuse and all sorts. It was terrible. And when I joined the Oriana, I thought, oh, God, what if they find out I'm gay, you know, Will, will I be abused? Will I be sacked? You know, but uh, when I got on board, I didn't take any notice. I couldn't believe it. You know, it's fantastic. When our boys joined, I always knew I sort of like fancied the same sex. In fact, on the um, on the, the, the cargo ships there, and there was always a certain amount of gay people anyway, mainly in the catering department. So therefore, it was not a strange thing. It was nothing to be frightened about, really. It's just the way it is. Five years into a career at sea the paths of the guy from Guildford and the boy from Belfast crossed. Like, well, ships in the night, if you'll excuse the pun. This encounter would alter the course of their lives forever. Here they are back in 2005, recounting their first ever meeting for the Maritime Museum's Hello Sailor exhibition. Dominic and I met in 1974, and I was on a ship called the Northern Star, and he was on a ship called the Oriana, and both ships were in Lisbon overnight. And, uh... He came on board the, the Northern Star with a crowd of crowd of deckhands off his ship for drinks because often at sea you did that sort of thing. You went onto another ship to have a drink and see what it was like and see if there was anybody there you knew. That evening we went out 
had a few drinks, had dinner. I went back aboard the Northern Star for a drink because his ship was sailing before mine. Unfortunately, I woke up in the middle of the night and the ship was at sea. So I actually stowed him away. And uh, of course, he went, he woke up and went rushing up looking for the gangway, but it had gone. Then I was thrown in the brig, the ship's prison, for three days. I didn't spend three days in the prison because um, the brig was quite a mess. And I decided to clean it up and paint it. The master at arms were so impressed that I cleaned it up and painted it, they sort of looked after me. Michael and his stowaway arrived back in Southampton three days later. Dominic, who had considered leaping from the departing ship and attempting to swim to shore, accepted the three-day fine that was handed down to him. The pair decided to pay off their respective ships and find work at sea together. We went to the Shipping Federation in Southampton to get a ship together and they wanted to put us back on passenger ships and he wanted to take me on a cargo boat. He'd been mainly cargo. So we went up to Tilbury Pool and we told them we wanted to get a ship together and, and looked behind the desk and said, he said, this is not a marriage bureau, you know. <laughs> but he winked and said, I'll see what I can do. And sure enough, he got us an old tanker, an old BP tanker. That was in 1974. And for the next 18 years, Michael and Dominic worked on the same ships together. This encompassed BP tankers, banana boats, several years with the Royal Fuel Auxiliary Service on replenishment at sea manoeuvres during the Cold War, back to passenger shipping with P&O in 1981, for a land-based adventure saw them start their own business in 1992 and successfully running that for 15 years. Even then, the draw of the water proved too much and they both worked on the Red Funnel Southampton to the Isle of Wight ferry service until retiring just a couple of years ago. But what I want to know is did all this time together, including months cooped up in small cabins in the midst of some treacherous sea, prepare them for being locked down in the middle of a pandemic? My work was different from his. So therefore we didn't sort of get fed up with each other or under each other's feet. In fact, you were you know, looking forward to seeing each other at the end of the day and have a beer and talk about things. You know, When we started the lockdown last year, it was fine. In fact, we didn't quite enjoy it because the weather was so nice. But by then, in the last year, we'd been together 46 years. So this year is 47 years. And after 46 years, you get used to each other. Uh, really, it's like you're like an old married couple, really. My brother in Canada used to say to me, you, you two are like an old married couple. I said, well, we are, you know. That was Michael Rudder and Dominic Brown sailing off into the sunset on that old BP tanker. Now, it's just a guess, but I'm not entirely sure that lifestyle would have suited the man we're going to hear about next, the acclaimed 20th century portrait painter, Glyn Philpott. Although, as you'll hear, Philpott was in many ways years ahead of his time and faced real prejudice himself. Daniel O'Connor starts by describing one of his most famous works, a painting you can see on Merseyside. Situated on the east balcony of Our Lady Lever venue is a portrait of Irene Mountbatten, the Marchioness of Carisbrook. It was painted just three years after Irene's mother-in-law, Princess Beatrice, the youngest daughter of the Queen Victoria, had officially opened the gallery in the garden village of Port Sunlight. The metatol painting is classic of early 20th century portraits of the aristocracy. In the image, Irene is seated and is wearing a formal burgundy and silver dress. A fur is draped around her left shoulder. She has a long white glove on her left hand, in which she clutches the matching one. This leaves her right hand exposed and brings attention to the pearl bracelet on her wrist. It oozes wealth, and it is a technically beautiful painting, commissioned in roughly 1925 
and painted by one of the aristocracy's most sought-after artists. I think Philpott is one of the major British artists of the 20th century. This is Dr. Michael Richard Barclay, an art historian, lecturer and collector of Glyn Philpott's work. You know, most artists, um, if they're competent artists, actually earn their bread and butter by being portrait painters. Philpott, for example, was commissioned to paint King Fahud of Egypt, and he hated every millisecond of the process. He had to go to Cairo, live there for several uh, months, and had to sort of, on a daily basis, wait to be summoned to the palace, and he would arrive, and then he'd have to sit for, for three hours and wait. You know, it was a very, very unhappy experience for him. Philpott may very well have seen portrait painting as just his job, but he was good at it. He was paid handsomely, and the commissions continued to roll in. This level of comfort allowed Philpott to travel the world and soak up the work of his contemporaries. He became known for his generosity to other artists, including aspiring ones, like Vivian Forbes. He joined the army on the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, and that's where he met a fellow uh, soldier called Vivian Forbes. And Philpott encouraged this uh, chap to become an artist. And he was quite a successful artist, nothing as successful as Philpott. Forbes went on to paint works like the one of Sir Thomas More refusing to grant Wolsey a subsidy that hangs in the Houses of Commons. Many speculate Philpott helped to finish that particular work. Author, historian, lecturer and philosopher Gerald Hurd said that Philpott told him, through Vivian, I could do something in art which I could not do myself. And what became increasingly apparent was that their relationship stretched far beyond master and apprentice. The pair were lifelong lovers. Most of the people who've written about Philpott, including Philpott's biographer, they've seen him as well, to use a very bold term, a leech on Philpott, uh, financially, uh, emotionally, artistically. And perhaps to a certain extent, he was very dependent on Philpott. But I don't think, you know, they have been very, very fair to him. Uh, he was absolutely devoted to Philpott. Philpott, although he was fairly open about his sexuality amongst his friends, publicly, he kept a facade. There was actually a group of artists who started what I would call a sort of vendetta letter going around, producing a list of names of artists that they thought were gay. And Philpott was named amongst them. Um, and, and really quite sinister. Whether or not it was this vicious circular, Philpott's success began to unravel. A turn to modernism in 1930, that Philpott himself described as a simplification of technique, as well as an increasing focus on the male form, caused a loss of income and reputation. This culminated most famously in 1933 when his painting The Great Pan was sensationally rejected for the Royal Academy's summer exhibition. Philpott was living in Paris at the time, and in a letter sent to him by the Royal Academy Secretary Walter Lamb, he remarked that the council had concerns over the bright flame which so sharply emphasises the sex organ of the male lover while concealing it. The rejection came despite Philpott being elected as an academician a decade earlier, and as such, expecting his work to bypass a selection committee. So when he came back to this country and he started exhibiting these new style pictures, there were sort of press notices saying things like, Mr. Philpott goes modern. And a lot of his sort of more traditional clients dropped away because what they wanted were 
what I would call the sort of glossy swagger portrait, you know, that made them look very tall and very elegant. And of course, he was now painting in very thin paint. He was moving away from three-dimensional perspective. It was a much more simplified style. Despite the loss of income that saw Philpott sell his country house and move into much cheaper digs in central London, he persevered with this style of art. His work from this period is now his most revered. A 1984 retrospective in the National Portrait Gallery sparked a significant increase in the worth of a Philpott work. The artworks that consistently break the records in the auction houses are Philpott's many portraits of Henry Thomas, a Jamaican sailor who reportedly missed his boat home and ended up working for Philpott. Art students at the University of Cambridge, Aleo Akinkabe, runs the popular A Black History of Art Instagram account and has spent some time studying Philpott's depictions of Thomas. There's a, a painting that's called Archaically Head of a Negro that was made in 1935 and a portrait of Frank Coons when we get his name. So besides the archaic name of the one of Henry, Henry Thomas, the two pages are very similar. And I would say that in this instance, he's depicting him as himself. He's um, creating a portrait and trying to reflect something of his personality. And it isn't demeaning compared to the portrait of Frank Koontz. And they look very similar. They're both looking off into the distance, wearing blue shirts and everything. But in most of his depictions of Henry Thomas, I'd say that um, I'd say that most of his depictions of Henry Thomas are kind of experimental. And I think that that's because Henry Thomas represented a suitable other for him, as opposed to his aristocratic subject. And in one of his earliest paintings, Henry Thomas, it's called Balthazar. And Balthazar is one of three biblical magi. And in European art, he's uh, traditionally depicted as black. So when I first came across this painting, I was thinking about how Philpott would have definitely seen the racial link. And I suppose one could say that he perceived in this instance, like it's not a portrait. It's um, Henry Thomas assuming a role of someone else and allowing Philpott to experiment. Henry Thomas spent the last seven years of Glenn Philpott's life with him um, as his companion and also as his servant. But I think that probably the relationship was more than just kind of employer-employee. And I would say that that definitely does show a shift in that as he got to know him, I think his depictions of him become perhaps more personal and less kind of um, exoticizing, less othering. Whether or not Thomas and Philpott's relationship was that of lovers has been of much debate. It is certainly true that many of Philpott's paintings of Thomas were nude studies, but there is little evidence of a relationship from Henry Thomas's perspective. All we do have is the note that he left on Philpott's grave, reading, For memory to my dear master, as well as my father and brother to me, God blessed him and forgive him for his kind heart and human nature from his poor servant Henry. But what is clear is that Vivian Forbes was not the only love in Philpott's life. He was, however, the most devoted. Philpott unfortunately died very young. He was only 53 when he died in 1937. Forbes was so distressed, he felt he couldn't go on living without Philpott. Um, And a mutual friend of theirs, she had a cousin who was a a medical doctor, and she obtained the sufficient amount of sleeping pills and gave this to Forbes. I mean, today we would consider that a crime. But Forbes took the overdose. You must be fairly devoted to somebody to feel that you cannot go on living without them and taking your own life. Um, And his last wish was to be buried um, either at Philpott's side or at Philpott's feet. I think that Forbes has really had a very unfair account of his relationship 
with Philpott. That he loved Philpott is without doubt. I've got several books in my collection which belong to Philpott but were given to him by Forbes and inscribed to him by Forbes. And you can see the love, the affection. And it's not just a physical affection, it's an emotional affection. I think if Philpott didn't have a deep affection for Forbes, he wouldn't have continued the relationship. And there are some superb um, portraits of Forbes by Philpott. In 2017, to mark the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, Brighton Museum and Art Gallery dedicated an entire room to Glyn Philpott. One item on display was the Bittersweet Loving Cup, presented to the museum by the Art Fund via Robin Gibson, the man responsible for that Glyn Philpott retrospective at the National Portrait Gallery in 1984. The cup has the names Glyn and Vivian engraved letter by letter on the lobe surrounding the bowl. A loving cup is often used ceremoniously at weddings, and one can only speculate the reasons the cup was made, but what's clear, at least from Dr. Barclay's perspective, is that theirs was a love that ran deep. These two men cared for each other. There is a love expressed there, there is a devotion expressed there, and I think it has to be respected. That's the art historian Dr. Michael Richard Barclay on the life and work of Glyn Philpott. Now, there can't be many Scousers with no family links to the sea or seafarers. My maternal grandmother lived with us as I was growing up, and Nana, Mary O'Neill, was a living link to one of the worst maritime disasters of the 20th century. Her father, Owen O'Hare, from Bootle, was one of the crew of the Cunard liner, the Lusitania, which sank just off the coast of Ireland so close to home in 1915. Nana was just 15 at the time, and like so many other people in Liverpool, her life changed forever that day. Here's Daniel again. Anybody who travels for work with loved ones at home will tell you about this unique sense of dread that rumbles at the pit of your stomach as soon as the aircraft engines begin to whir. You know it's irrational. You've done it countless times before. It's the safest mode of transport. Nevertheless, just before you switch your phone to aeroplane mode, you'll send a message home saying something like, I love you. It's not your regular I love you. It's an I love you tinged with the doubt that you will ever make it home at all. Imagine how amplified those feelings would be if before you'd even boarded your vessel home, you were told that it was a prime target for enemy fire. Prior to... Lusitania setting off from New York. The German um, consulate in, in New York sort of issued a warning to British shipping that they were potentially going to be fired on. That's our head of the Maritime Museum, Ian Murphy, there, discussing what was the jewel in the crown of early 20th century British passenger shipping, Cunard Lines, RMS Lusitania. In its heyday, Lucy, as the ship was known, was ferrying 2,000 souls back and forth from Liverpool to New York at record-breaking speeds. On May 1st, 1915, in the midst of World War I, Lusitania set off from New York with the threat hanging over it of a new kind of naval warfare, that of the submarine. In the first years of the war, the submarines are actually sort of adhering to the rules and the, the behaviour of previous 
you know, the Crimean War or the Napoleonic Wars, and that they come to the surface and they tell a ship to surrender. And then there's this kind of escalation where the government then, the British government, sort of says, well, no, if a submarine comes around them, the next step is they then start sort of firing on ships from below the surface. I was think the First World War starts off like the kind of 19th century wars at sea. And it very shortly, you've got this escalation. By the end of the war, you've got what we now think, how we now view war at sea, which is submarines acting in, you know, packs to, to sink shipping kind of completely unannounced. Lusitania could outrun any of the submarines that were, that were operating at, at that time. But this area of concern, in a way, was just off the southern coast of Ireland. The weather was poor for Lusitania, so the captain effectively slowed down to take a read in, in, in poor visibility. So really, it was this point where they just kind of turn up the the, um, the Irish Sea. It's almost like they're just entering the kind of home straight, but it was also, you know, the area of greatest risk in a way. It, it's an element of the ship being close to coast, close to home, but still in danger. And it, unfortunately, all of those circumstances kind of came together in an attack where one torpedo was enough to kind of bring down this kind of huge ocean liner with a loss of, of 1,200 lives. That attack on the 7th of May 1915 by the German submarine U-20 happened just hours before the Lusitania was scheduled to dock in its home city of Liverpool. A single torpedo sunk that ship, carrying 1,962 souls, in less than 20 minutes. Only 761 people survived. Amongst the unthinkable carnage, there were countless acts of heroism and love. Take Harold and Alice Smethurst, for example. Harold boarded his wife onto a lifeboat and stayed behind to help others on board. He eventually shimmied down a rope and swam away from the suction that was being created as Lucy sank. Tiring, beginning to struggle, and desperately seeking some sort of refuge from the Irish Sea, he was picked up by a boat, on board of which was Alice. You know, when we talk about the figures around um, Lusitania, we talk about the kind of numbers lost. They were 1,200 individual people, and the, the, the impact would have been felt within their family, but it had been felt through the city as well. So the crews were largely, almost entirely made up from British people, but in terms of Lusitania, there's a high proportion of those are from, from Liverpool itself and you know, from the northwest and, and North Wales. You know, I think we, we identified around 600 people with, with strong Liverpool links. You know, I always kind of think when you when you see the impact of things like a mining disaster on a mining town, it's it's a sort of profound kind of shock to, to a community that's often, you know, it's felt through the generations. And I, I think something like Lusitania would have, would have had a similar impact within the city. And I think that's why the shock that follows on from the sinking is so sort of marked. And it's because that impact within a sort of seafaring community would have been within the immediate family, but within those kind of, um, it would have it would have rippled out across the kind of streets and, and avenues through the city as well. There are far more tragedies and stories about loved ones lost that show perhaps those messages that you sent home are not so irrational after all. Take the story of John Henry Hayes, a fifth engineer on board Lusitania. After nearly two weeks of hard graft on board, he's headed home to Bootle to see his wife, Janetta. John died during the sinking on May 7th. Just 20 days later, 
Janetta gave birth to the daughter he'd never get the opportunity to meet. Janetta never remarried. She raised their daughter, Jeanette, and was one of the last widows of the Lusitania to draw a pension from Cunard until she died in 1984. John's love for his wife and his unborn child are reflected beautifully in a poem he wrote home to mark New Year's Day 1915. The poem was brought to life for the Maritime Museum by a voice actor. My thoughts are with you, dear, this New Year's Day, and my love must reach you, though miles away. Sweet pictures and daydreams are crowding my mind of the dear little wife who I'm hoping to find, happy in health with a welcoming smile for the boy who has loved her this long, long while. My wishes for you, dear, this new year, although too numerous to mention here, are all full of tenderness, touched with care, for that dear burden, oh, could I but share. But God's gift is yours, dear, and makes a part of a stronger chain to bind two loving hearts. Then here's to our love, dear, this New Year's Day, and a bright future be ours, bid Cupid stay. And here's to the stranger, its health and long life, and here's to its mother, my sweet wife, who has made the old year just like new by her sweet loving kindness to a big soft fool. When we talk about the museum, the things that strike you as some of the most affecting are often things like letters home. And I think for, for John Henry Hayes, the thing for me as well, was it being a poem? It's somebody who's consciously trying to talk about their feelings and their sort of um, the sense of missing somebody, but of their love for somebody as well. And that's something that's maybe even more rare than these kind of letters are. And it's, it's quite unusual to have somebody trying to express their feelings. You know, somebody like genetic wife when she's reading this. I can't believe she wouldn't be hearing this as his voice. It's something that's a record of him long after he's gone. It's easy to sort of lose these things when you talk about museum collections as to what the significance of this is and how it would have been read and how it would have been heard by the person it was intended for. That's the head of the Maritime Museum, Ian Murphy, on the poem written by John Henry Hayes. I wonder what it was like for his wife to read that for the first time. Incredible. For more on each of the stories featured this time, you can go to liverpoolmuseums.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast by National Museums Liverpool on love. If you're writing your own love story and looking for a unique wedding venue to hire once COVID-19 is under control, search Liverpool Museums Weddings. Regarding the Present was hosted by the marvellous Jane Garvey. Stories put together by me, Daniel O'Connor. It was mixed and mastered by the amazing Sam August at Onomatopoeia Post Productions. Our artwork is by the visionary Safa Khan. And the theme music is by Big Giant Circles. (laughs) 